sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Yo, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Get involved in the show. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Got a little note here. Uh, guys, Elvin here from Erie, PA. Longtime listener. Big time fan. Yay. You know I gotta be true to myself, Elvin. Let's just stop down here for a moment. Anyone that knows me very well would know that I was sick and needed to go to the hospital if you brought up Erie, Pennsylvania, and I did not play this clip. Wanna see my deck? See? You gotta be quick. You gotta be quick with me. I'm from Erie, PA. That, of course, is from my favorite movie of all time, That Thing You Do. A story about a 1960s rock band seeking national stardom after getting their song on the radio in their hometown of, you guessed it, Erie, PA. That is your favorite movie. I remember that, you saying that. Oh, dude, it's it's the best. It's sometimes like my favorite movie has been like Water for Chocolate. And like yours is... (laughs) (laughs) Very on brand? I mean, also like... Very on brand. I've had moments where I've had other favorite... I've I've, I've claimed other favorite movies that maybe make me a stereotype. There was a large period of my life where Fight Club was what I would have told you my favorite movie is. But I think truly to be me and myself, really probably since that movie came out in 1996... That is my favorite movie. It's fantastic. If you've never seen it, I quote it all the time. I'm surprised it hasn't come up on the show much before, but it's fantastic. So, Elvin, I sincerely hope you properly celebrate that film, and thank you for listening and allowing me that detour. Now, let's get to the actual question that Elvin sent in. Yes, Elvin. Uh, Recently, on another podcast, I heard Jack White and Neil Young mention that Neil had a band with Rick James a long time ago. I would love to hear more about this if you could dig anything up in the meantime keep telling stories first i had street songs on vinyl so hell yeah you did i didn't i didn't understand what the song uh pass the j like pass the joint another (laughs) hit i got something to say i didn't really even know what that you were like why why do they Um, keep going past the club they're trying to go to they're passing the the joint joint. (laughs) Um, yeah so i had that and so what a freaking awesome question, Elvin. Now, it's crazy, too, because Elvin's on to something here. This story is like a choose-your-own-adventure juncture in, in rock and roll history. This is like things could have ended up very differently for a whole lot of people if Rick James had made different decisions in his life. This is sort of a fascinating case study. I can't think of another moment in rock history that you can point to where you're like, if they'd exited out the other door, everything could have been different. Like, this is this is a real obvious place where things change. And so we're going to get into all that, but I think first we have to talk about something specifically. We just have to get it out of the way. Cause if we're going to say Rick James on this show, it's very important that we address another clip, which of course is this. I'm Rick James, bitch. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> that of course is Dave Chappelle on the Chappelle show. I I've watched Chappelle since he was, before he was 21 years old. So I, I'd watched his entire career. And so when he got a television show, I was I was glued to it, like watching it every week when it came out. This yeah. is the Rick James pop cultural moment that may in certain circles be bigger than Street Songs and Super Freak and all that other stuff, right? I mean, I'm going to venture a guess that, and this is a rough estimate, but if you're like between 35 and 45 right now, 
you may find yourself saying bitch every time you hear the name Rick James uttered. Like, you may have seen the title of this episode and just said bitch subconsciously. Fascinating artifact because it had so much to do with timing. TV quips in 2022, they don't get legs like this anymore. If you saw something hilarious on HBO last night, a small group of your friends might might catch the reference, right? But not everybody. Yeah, but that's it. That's it. Yeah, this sort of ubiquity is a thing of the past. While somebody can go viral quickly and see like a massive amount of audience consume something like today, nothing has staying power because there's too much on offer. But in 2004, February 11th to be exact, when the fourth episode of the second season of Chappelle's show aired on Comedy Central, <laughs> I mean, social media was barely a thing at that point, right? YouTube was in beta maybe, if around at all. You might use your instant messenger or post a clip to your MySpace page, but you might also still be on dial-up. That's a real possibility in 2004. There yep. was like enough internet to see its potential, but not so much internet that a remarkable moment like this would get buried and forgotten within 72 hours, which is what would happen now. Here's how Wired described this, the effect of this sketch. If for some reason you weren't around for it, don't remember it or need a refresher. That episode, to put it mildly, set a lot of things in motion. It paved the way for SNL's digital shorts like Lazy Sunday. It gave us more catchphrases. It catapulted the show and Charlie Murphy and even Rick James, which we'll talk about, into the mainstream spotlight. And finally, and sadly, it began the commodification of Chappelle's show by the people who would be interrupting Dave's comedy act with catcalls of, I'm Rick James, bitch, for years to come. I do feel like we have to explain what this was if, again, for some reason, you have just never experienced this. It was a sketch called Charlie Murphy's True Hollywood Stories, where Charlie Murphy, Eddie Murphy's brother, would tell stories about hanging out with his brother back in the day and their encounters with famous people because of Eddie's fame. And this particular story about has Dave playing the part of Rick James to act the story out. But what put it over the top was they got the actual Rick James to just sit on camera and do live rebuttal as the story is being told. So to either rebut what Charlie Murphy was saying as he was telling the story or sometimes, you know, saying sure. Yeah, to confirm it. Generally rebutting most of what he was saying. Right. There is one time where they they cut to Rick James and he says something like he's like I didn't I didn't like get up and like kick my feet on on somebody's couch to do something crazy like that and then like within seconds he's like of course I I went and kicked at somebody's couch like he said the same thing exactly <laughs> like within just a few seconds like now and it was great uh, and that's where you got cocaine is a hell of a drug which became another crazy thing. That people, people say, they, I mean, loud. it's it's bigger than Chappelle's show. Now, people say cocaine is a hell of a drug all the time now, out of just totally out of context of that. Now, the, the, the reason this sketch works, it's important to understand, is that if there was a heavyweight championship belt for the most crazy-ass stories coming out of one person in rock and roll history, it would be Rick James. Like, I think he holds that title. Can you think of anybody else that can compete with that title? No, I mean the stuff that he went to, the stuff he got in trouble with the law. Yeah. With, oh yeah, 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 crazy yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, let sure. me let me illustrate yeah. how crazy his stories are by pulling one at random, totally out of context. This is the opening of a New York Post piece about the posthumously published Rick James autobiography, which is a giant source for this episode. Rick James was crashing on Stephen Stills' couch sometime in the late '60s when he awoke to see a young dude sitting on the floor in the lotus position, stoned as a motherfucker, with quote blood dripping from his wrist. He seemed hypnotized by the flow of his own blood, saying things like, isn't the blood beautiful? Isn't that the deepest red you've ever seen? James, fearing the mystery man would bleed to death, woke up Stephen Stills, who responded, ah, fuck, he's doing it again. Stills, 
gathered up bandages, gauze, and took care of the guy, quote, who remained passive throughout the ordeal. When he was through, Rick James says, quote, he said to me, hey, Ricky, meet my friend Jim Morrison. <laughs> and there are lots of these crazy ass stories, right? And so that's why this bit, like it, this bit capitalizes on this, the, the fact that outlandish stories are Rick James's brand and takes that fact and puts it on display in front of America. And did you know that at the time this, this airs, Rick James has been inactive. He's not yes. been doing music for five to six years. For, yes. He wasn't doing anything at all. And this revives his career. Like, and when I say immediately, I'm not joking. It airs in February. He goes out on tour in May and June. Like, he's not been planning this. Like, they just plan a tour for him on May and June. He dies in August. Yes, right. He died the same year as this skit. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. But that's the end of Rick James. What Elvin is asking about is the beginning, the birth of the character, the personality, the person we would come to know as Rick James. But what this research taught me is that Rick James really and truly has become defined by these larger-than-life stories. In fact, this is true, I found often in this research that if I read a Cliff's Notes story about Rick James in a magazine article or some sort of reference material or on Wikipedia pages, when compared to the story he tells himself in his memoir, the stories in the press are much wilder. His own story is much more reserved than the one other people are telling. But to illustrate how crazy this all is, there's two versions of his autobiography. So he dies in 04. And he'd been working on it. And this version called Confessions of a Super Freak comes out in like 07. And for some reason, and I'm unclear on the specifics of this, but for some reason it's not, it's either not cleared by his estate or the, the writer he was working with is unhappy with it for some reason. I don't know if there's like publishing rights belong to somebody else or what, but it gets out and it's, it's like sort of hard to find, but you can find it. There's a link to it in the show notes and you should look at like the covers they've sold this with. Cause it looks really seedy. But then this guy reclaims like the guy who was working on it with him gets the opportunity to release what he considers the, the better and more official version of this. And it is called glow. And That comes out seven years later, 10 years after he dies. I consulted both of these texts and looked at the differences to make sure everything seemed legit. And I will say Glow is better written than Confessions of a Super Freak. I I would like to, on behalf of our audience, Brian, I would like to thank you for going through the research of reading about (laughs) our Super Freak (laughs) with two different versions of his life. the super super freaking the super freaking research that you just did yeah is super freaking awesome let me tell you how super freaking crazy this book is so he just also like in glow is actually maybe seedier at least the parts that i read than the stuff that i read in the other book there's just parts where he's talking about regular stuff like the stuff we're going to talk about and then he will just start talking about very specific and descriptive sexual things which I guess is on brand, but it will be like mid-sentence. Like, it'll be like, and then we went and did this, and we went to this club, and we played this show, and then I started doing this thing with this woman, and you're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Stay focused. Maybe that could all be in one chapter, Rick. Uh, so uh, before we get to all that, before we get to all that craziness, let's get into the backstory, right? 
seven siblings, Buffalo, New York, 1948. Wow. He is born as James Ambrose Johnson Jr. James Johnson. Uh, yeah, Jamie Johnson. His mama was running numbers for the Magadino crime family. That seems to be uh, verified. This meant that she had to go into bars night after night and yeah, either pick up money. Numbers. Yeah, pick up yeah. money, move it around, right? And and so she would sometimes take the children with her, and she just had to. This is just how it went. And so he actually would be in these bars and clubs, and people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Eddie James would be on stage. And he's like a little kid, having no idea what he's witnessing. How amazing. He, he's also a Catholic choir boy, St. Bridget's Catholic Church. But he gets into some bad stuff. I mean, he's, he's growing up around this crime family in Buffalo, right? A, a crime family that's often just referred to as like the Buffalo crime family. That's how ubiquitous they are in that area. They're not even referred to by their name sometimes. Uh, BC, BCF, <laughs> Buffalo crime family. Hashtag. Uh, so he, he ends up in jail for theft like at a young age. Uh, then he'll lie about his age so he can enter the Navy Reserves and avoid the draft. There's like this weird maneuvering he tries to do to not go to Vietnam, first by going to the Reserves, but then like not showing up for the Reserves. So then he gets like court-martialed and in trouble anyway. It's like this, it's crazy. Um, and it's a little, it depends on which book you read or, or what story you read, the exact details of this. But basically you need to know that at some point he, he purposely goes AWOL. Right, and this right. is the big moment of all the other crazy things Rick James will do. This is the one that changes music history. So we're going to talk about why. But all right, uh, he he goes to Canada, and he goes to Toronto, which is where almost all Americans go when they go to Canada. I researched this recently. That's what happens. Almost every American goes to Toronto if they're going to immigrate. Highly highly recommended. Uh, I hear it's great. I would love to go. My sister went recently. She told me it was great. You tell me it was great. Uh, our, our mutual friend Charles went not too long ago, said it was great. Um, if we have any listeners in Toronto, shouts to you. Uh, do you have an Airbnb? So, uh, have you ever heard of Yorkville? Have you ever heard of Yorkville in Toronto? No, I have not. Okay, I hadn't either. It, it becomes known as the Greenwich Village of Canada, it, which basically means it's like the hub and center for the hippie movement. Especially in terms of artistic output. It, it first started as just a suburban neighborhood in 1830 that was outside Toronto. Eventually gets annexed into Toronto proper in the 1880s. And it's got these beautiful Victorian homes and gardens. It's gorgeous. And it seems like a great place to dodge a draft. Because if that's hippie culture, they're probably sympathetic. But the story goes that there's also not sympathetic people there. James Johnson shows up in this place and he's walking through the street. Again, depending on what version of this you hear, maybe he was at a bar, maybe he's walking through the street, and he pretty quickly, he's like, it's important to the story that the way it's told, he's still in his Navy uniform. So there are some drunk Americans who see him in his Navy uniform in Canada and accuse him of being a draft dodger, call him a racial slur, and they, they, they go to start a fight. And it's probably going to be like three or four to one, Right. Because he doesn't know anybody. He's new in this area. Probably not going to end well. These other dudes see what's going on, and they intervene. And this is fairly well documented. You're going to call BS on this, because I had to find it like four places before I believed it. But oh, I can't wait. Could I, could I guess? Guess who 
is there to intervene before Rick James gets his ass kicked. Crosby, Stills, and Nash saves the day. <laughs> All of them. They just like ride in on steeds. No, it, it's a. So kick everybody's ass. It, it's not Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but you're not that far off. It's a, 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 two guys. It's actually three guys. It's this guy, Pat McGraw, who's a local hustler, and he gets sort of into the story. But he's hanging out with these two local musicians, Garth and Levon. And Garth and Levon are in a band together. Again, multiple versions of this story. There's this version that says, and you'll see this a lot, like in magazine articles and stuff, but this is not the version according to Rick. But that version says that Garth Hudson and Levon Helm, who will later go on to be in the band, take this kid to a bar and then hear him sing, and then rename their band that they're currently in and ask him to join. That's like the bastardized version of this story. That's not what happens. What actually happens is that Garth and Levon, they take him along with this third guy, Pat McGraw, and they go get coffee. And then after they get coffee and Levon and Garth introduce themselves and they talk and, oh, yeah, we got to go do something, they take off. And that's really it. So people act like... They were in a band together? Like, this is this all gets convoluted. And this is why it's important that Elvin asked this question and, and why it's worth asking. Because when you hear these passing references to it, there's all these versions where it's like, well, first he was in this band with the band, and then he was in this other band with Neil Young, and then he was in... Okay, so he wasn't in this band with the band. He met them very quickly when he got to Canada, and he gets plugged into the music scene, but he really starts hanging out with this guy, Pat McGraw. And what... The, the more official version of the story is that Pat will take him to a bar that night and convince him to sing on stage. And it will be that bar band that James Johnson, newly arrived in Canada, will join. And very quickly after that, he will take the name Ricky James Matthews in order to obscure his Navy deserting identity. Now, wow. this... I will say, so maybe he wasn't in a band with Levon Helm, but the connections in the Canadian music scene that come into this story make it sound like, because I guess it was, that every major Canadian musician in the 60s and 70s lived in lived within like a block of each other. Like they all show up here. Um, so here's the first example of that. The guy that he is playing with on stage this night, the band leader is this guy, Nick St. Nicholas. Now, Nick St. Nicholas, I'm just spoiler alert, will go on to be in Steppenwolf. And Steppenwolf, the, like there are auxiliary Steppenwolf guys in this story. So that's just one example. But he's in this, he starts, he does his band with Nick St. Nicholas. Nick St. Nicholas ends up getting this other gig, being in this other band, sort of behind the back of the band he's been playing with where they are like basically pretending to be the Beatles. Like they're not a Beatles tribute act, but they're like just aping the Beatles. And there's a guy from that band. The best I understand, it's the guy from that band who gets, who Nick replaces, then comes into the band that Rick James, Ricky James Matthews at the time is playing in. And they'll call this band Sailor Boys. And that guy, that guy who joins Sailor Boys is Bruce Palmer. Now, if you know that name, you're all set. If not, remember it because it becomes important later. Around this time, they meet this guy named Colin Kurt, who seems into becoming a rock manager. There's these references to like he wanted to be Brian Epstein, right? And 
at the time, though, he's not doing that. He's running a coffee shop. And the name of the coffee shop is The Mina Bird. Oh, and man. He first tells these guys they need to change their name. He's like, why don't you just change your name to the name of my shop? It's cool. Mina Bird. You can be the Mina Birds. And then he tells them how to dress. So he gets some yellow turtlenecks, leather pants, yeah. leather jackets, and yellow boots. Yes. Man, that sounds, that sounds hot. That's actually what I wore today when I left the house. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. Um, so... And then he also tells, here's the other thing Colin Kerr gives them. Colin Kerr gives them a lot of headaches pretty quickly, but he does give them some valuable stuff. And one of the things he teaches them to do is to pull a Sinatra. Do you know what it means to pull a Sinatra? Uh, not officially, no. <laughs> You'll probably have some guesses. This is a term I made up. This isn't actually how he described it to them. But he does take a move out of Sinatra's playbook, and he says he's taking this move out of Sinatra's playbook when he explains it to the guys. We've spent some time on Sinatra on this show. And we are going to spend some more time soon, I'm sure. Uh, because he really does lay the groundwork for like rock and roll star, right? Even though he's not a rock and roller, by strict definition, right. he brings the rock and roll star power. And this is a perfect example of how he did that. He had this PR guy named George Evans, who'd been handling big bands and the band leaders. And he takes on Frank because he sees the pandemonium that Frank can cause among teenage girls. So he decides when he sees some screaming teenage girls react to Frank that that is something that can be commodified. Like if they're going to go into an auditorium, he will plant actresses throughout the auditorium who just have to scream at Frank until the rest of the crowd does. Wow. And he pays them five bucks a gig, according to what I read. <laughs> this is the early 1940s, so that's pretty good teenage money. Five dollars in 1940 to go yell at a concert? That's pretty awesome. I mean, too, it's like, uh, I mean, that's the foundation of rock and roll propaganda right there for live records. I mean, this is 20 years before the Beatles, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's what, so here, it's interesting, quick side note, by, has got, like, I sort of thought this was a thing of the past, but my daughter recently went and saw the uh, artist Conan Gray play a theater show. Mm -hmm. You've got younger daughters, maybe you've heard of this guy. I did not until she informed me of him. And this dude sold out a 3,000-person theater. And she said, when I asked her how the show was, that it was hard to hear because all of the girls in the theater were screaming the whole time, like literally. Wow. And she has a video of all these girls screaming, right? So that still happens, apparently. And this guy, George Evans, figured out how to commodify it. So this guy, Colin Kerr, wants to do exactly that with Ricky James and Bruce Palmer and the other guys in the boys that or in the band they're now calling Sailor Boys. So he sends them to this big department store to go shopping together, and then he hires girls to start chasing them. And says, <laughs> try to tear their clothes off. And then he makes sure the news is nearby. So he orchestrates this whole thing. Oh it, it literally hits the news that this rock band gets chased. And they don't, they're not, they don't even have music out, really. Like, they're just a local band. He gets the hype machine going on these guys. Ricky's writing stuff. But when they get to a studio, Colin Kerr has totally different plans. And this is from the, the Rick James memoir, the, the Glow version, the 2014 version. Colin's brother had songs of his own they wanted us to record. Those were the songs that Colin insisted we do. The Mina Bird Hop and the Mina Bird Song. <laughs> and they're called the Mina Birds, and they were born out of the coffee shop, the Mina Bird Cafe. This guy is like clearly... Got one 
plan here. After we cut the tunes, Colin sent us to do a teeny bopper TV show in Hamilton, Ontario. I was excited. The studio was filled with screaming girls, all hired by Colin. And as a gimmick, I was supposed to sing to a blind minor bird. A, a blind minor bird? Oh my gosh. I, I went along with the program. I let them put this bird on my hand and I sang this dumbass song. And the girls loved it. But I didn't, especially when the bird started shitting on my hand. <laughs> when I tried to push the bird off, he dug his claws into my skin. With bird shit and blood all over me, I nearly ran out of the studio. Somehow I got through the song. Somehow. I also got through four minor bird shows at the Colonnade Theater. The girls were screaming so loud I couldn't hear myself sing. This is bullshit, I finally told the guys in the band. This music is bullshit, this act is bullshit, and the little money we're getting out of it is bullshit. I say we burn these costumes and tell Colin to go fuck himself. That's a quote from Rick James. The the guys agreed. We left Colin and kept the name Minor Birds, but changed our look. We we went back to big minor birds. We, yeah, they're a little less on the nose, apparently. We go back to the far-out hippie image that was closer to our true character, and we also changed our music. This was the result of something that happened when I went to New York City. Now, here's another crazy part of the story I did not anticipate when I started. And this is for the music yeah. nerds in the house, right? This is just music okay. nerd stuff. So this is the New York story in a nutshell. Rick goes to New York with a friend, and... He sees the Lovin' Spoonful in concert. Oh, my gosh. I used to work at a, a group of radio stations, and they played the best of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we had not only the original <laughs> the original Loving Spoonful with John Sebastian. Also, I got to see a show with John Sebastian. Uh, and then one time in college, my earliest experience of this was where I got convinced some guys to go to Gatlinburg, go see the Loving Spoonful, and there was no John Sebastian, and we all thought that we had taken the brown acid. It was the worst experience ever. It was like a thing you like wanted to claw, like like claw your pull your ears off the side of your face. It was like everything was wrong about the noise coming out of them. Love them. Uh, so does my dad. That's the fun fact. My dad is a huge Loving Spoonful fan. Turned me on to them early, so I've always appreciated them. And you know who else appreciates a loving spoonful and is a huge fan? Who's that? Uh, uh, Rick James. He goes on. <laughs> he goes. He goes just to see them once while he's in New York, and he gets obsessed and obsessed and starts squeezing in opportunities to see them while he's in New York. He sees them three times total. Oh my it, god! While he's there, so like over a course of a week or something. Throughout his career, he will cite Spoonful as a huge influence, and music journalists will think it as a joke. But he is so jazzed on them that he comes back to Canada. He goes to Bruce Palmer and he says, this is what we need to do with the minor birds. We should do something that sounds like this. And Bruce's response is, I think I have a friend who will be perfect to help us because I think he can play guitar like that. And he's staying. Oh my gosh. He's staying at Joni's house. Enter Roberta Joan Mitchell. Uh, This is how Rick in his autobiography talks about his friendship with Roberta Joan Mitchell. Quote, it wasn't sexual, but musical is a motherfucker. (laughs) And that is how I hope you describe our relationship to people, Murdoch. That is true. I think it's not sexual, but it is very (laughs) musical as a motherfucker. (laughs) 
He says she and I would sit up all night listening to Miles' sketches of Spain. Apparently, she's famous at this time for letting musicians crash at her pad. Uh, she lived over this place called the Purple Onion Coffee House. She has got this guy living there. This is what Rick he's James says Canada. in the book. Yeah, he, he, he says in the book, Joni had killer taste, so if she recommended a musician the way that she and Bruce were recommending this guy, that was all the assurance I needed. And that guy, of course, is Neil Young. And there's pictures to prove it. There's pictures to prove it. So this is just the beginning. This is when Rick meets Neil. Now, this is what he will say about him. Neil was cool. He had a quirky sense of humor and a quick mind. Like most of the other white musicians in Toronto, he was really into black music. His singing was a little strange, but his facility on the guitar was crazy. <laughs> I like how Rick James describes that. Like, we don't know who Neil Young is in this book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, it's, it's, yeah, his singing wasn't that good, but he's a pretty good guitar player. I mean, he's weird. Sounded weird singing, but you would just have to hear it to understand. Yeah, no, we've, we've heard it and we understand. I, I forget. I know we've talked about this before because we've talked about Neil quite a bit on the show. I I don't love Neil Young music. Oh, I do. You yeah, do? Okay. I really love Neil Young. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're probably complete, total opposites about that. And I like the Neil Neil Young record he did with Pearl Jam. Oh, Mirrorball. Like yeah, Pearl yeah, yeah. Sure, 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 sure. Love Mirrorball. Yeah. So this is uh, Rick talking about this relationship with Neil. Quote, he got all over those strings and showed me some shit I'd never seen before. Neil helped reshape the Mina Birds into the band I'd been hearing inside my head. Like John Sebastian. This is a quote from Rick. Like John Sebastian, Neil bridged folk, blues, and rock in a format that didn't sound artificial. It sounded real. He was the missing ingredient. What an amazing thing to have Rick James say about you. Right? <laughs> so the Mina Birds will, will flip around in terms of who's in and who's out. And it gets confusing when trying to track this story. Nick St. Nicholas like appears back in the mix at some point. Uh, Goldie McJohn will join the band. And if you don't know that name, Goldie McJohn uh, is one of the guys who will, will be in this other band that eventually becomes Steppenwolf. Yeah. And right when they're getting this all together with this new lineup that includes both Bruce Palmer and Neil Young, along with, with Rick, as Rick James will put it, and the right man came to hear us. And that man is John Craig Eaton, the heir of the Eaton dis Department Store Fortune. Now, Eaton is a Canadian brand that we do not know about here in America, but a big deal at the time. This guy has tons of money and not a lot to do with it, apparently. And he gets enamored with his band, and he wants to be the financial front end. So he starts throwing new gear at them and gets them ready to record. And then he drops news on them. He says, guys, I told you I was going to take care of you. You have an audition with Barry Gordy. And I, mean, I don't want to jump. I mean, I'm going to jump ahead. I mean, do you know what, what, what label Street, Sound, Street Sounds was on? What label is that on? That's, it's Motown. So <laughs> he says they have this yeah. audition with Motown Records. And Rick questions this at first because he's the one black guy in this band. And they're going to an entirely black label. So he brings us up. But their folks say that Barry is looking to get into rock and roll. This is his whole thing. He wants to get a white rock band fronted by a black guy. It seems like the perfect way to bridge into that market. So the Mina Birds go to Detroit. This is Rick in his memoir again. We went to meet Gordy and his boys. Our audition took place in an office building. 
Barry, a little guy, seemed to be in a hurry. He reminded me of a pug, a compact dog with a sweet face. (laughs) I knew he'd been a boxer and also written songs for Jackie Wilson. Given the number of stars he'd created, he had major cred, but he also had this really high-pitched, childlike voice that made it hard to take him seriously. (laughs) (laughs) So... To cut to the chase, the audition goes well, and the Mina Birds sign to Motown Records. And he gets to meet all his heroes. He's totally starstruck. He gets to hang out with Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder will tell him that Ricky James Matthews is way too long of a name for him to use. And so, on the advice of Stevie Wonder, who at the time is like 16, he cuts it down to Rick James. See what I mean about all these intersections? It's insane how much... Music history, Rick James has his fingers on. It's so interesting about how he came, where he came out at, like where his musical... Uh, yeah. Toronto. And then, yeah, yeah like, so yeah, physically and, and Toronto then, is where he, he comes be- from, and then where he ends up is crazy. And then where he actually has hits, it's like, really? You know. So he's living large. He's living large, as you or I would be if we were hanging out with teenage Stevie Wonder, and that dude is renaming us, and we're we're meeting Marvin Gaye, and... You know, we're actually recording at the legendary Motown. And so he decides to call his mom. He actually decides to do more than call his mom. Remember, he's in Canada. His mom's in the States. He decides to go see his mom. And then he takes her back to Toronto, and he shows her around and shows her off. And he starts spending money because they're supposed to get this advance money for Motown. But that advance money for Motown isn't showing up. And the producer and the manager that helped them get there keep being evasive. And this is where Rick will admit he starts doing a lot of speed. So he says, possibly, this might have happened while he was on speed. uh, He goes to his manager's house to figure out where this money is that he's been owed. Because it's been a while and the money's not showing up. And he notices that in this guy's driveway is a new motorcycle. And so he sort of puts two and two together and jumps to the worst conclusion. And he beats the shit out of this guy that's been managing him. And he thinks, okay, well, I'll beat the shit out of that guy. So now the minor birds are out of their management contract. One way to fire your manager, too. (laughs) It's like getting kicked out of the mob. I mean, you know, right? He grew up around the Buffalo crime family. You have to send a letter, you know, you have to date it, you know, put the header on it and all that crap. Your ass has been kicked. Sincerely, Rick James. Uh, So he thinks everything's good because they got this Motown contract. So it doesn't really matter, even though this manager helped them get it. But here is where Rick James has completely and totally miscalculated something. There was only one person in Canada that Rick James told that he was AWOL from the Navy. He told that manager. Oh, no. The guy whose ass he just kicked? Uh, That guy calls Motown, and Motown's lawyer calls Rick James. No Mina Birds record is getting released. And he says, why? And they say, because you're a fugitive who's wanted by the FBI in America. Oh, man. That stinks. So let's go back to the memoir now. I was sunk. Not only was the Motown contract gone, but so was the possibility of siding with any major American label. The FBI had blanketed the music industry waiting for me to make my next move. They'd alerted every record company to contact them the minute I approached. I was cornered. 
I couldn't get signed anywhere. All I could do was stay in Toronto. The other minor birds were understandably pissed that I had ruined our deal. I hadn't been straight with him about my military status. Yet, Neil Young and Bruce Palmer, both great guys, stayed loyal, and they did not kick me out of the band. But how could I stay in when my presence would keep them from getting a deal? What the hell was I supposed to do? So then he calls his mom back. Come home, said mom. You're going to have to face this sooner or later. Better to give yourself up, do your time, and come out free, and then you'll be able to pursue your career. Mom was right. I was out of options. I hated like hell to give myself up to the man. It was against everything in my nature, but because Motown had validated my talent, I knew I could break through to the big time, and if that meant spending some time in the brig, I would do what I had to do. It all happened so quickly. And here's one of my favorite sentences from the memoir. Still on speed, I raced back to Buffalo and called the FBI. (laughs) I mean, how many times have you said that? <laughs> I will say that the one time I was in Buffalo, I was not on speed. I was on the Maid of the Mist, and it was quite d- delightful. Uh, so he calls the FBI, and he tells them, pick me up on Saturday. And so he's got one day. It's Friday. He goes to his mom's. He tells her what's happening. The FBI is picking him up the next morning, and she goes, Listen. I got a treat for you. I want to give you a memory to ease the pain of prison. And he says, what's that? And she says, Miles Davis is playing at the Royal Arms, and I got us a table up front. Gosh. All of this had happened before I turned 19. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Before you was 19. Here's the crazy thing, dude. So remember how I said, like, he's got the most crazy-ass stories? He goes to military prison. He's in there for a few months, and he's on really good behavior, and then he starts hanging out with these two guys. One of them works in the mess hall, and that dude hatches an escape, and they escape from military prison. Oh, he escaped from prison. He escapes from military prison. Like That's a totally true story. You know, for some people at like 19, like at his point, like almost had the record deal, got to hang out with Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, and then have to go to prison and then try and escape from get a prison, like getting shot at that point. It's like, it's been a good ride. Like like you have nailed, you have freaking nailed it. This one shot at life shit that people talk about. That is nailing it. That's what that is. So he goes on this partying spree and this is a part in the book where he's like telling the story about escaping from prison. And then he just starts talking about the things he does to women when he's out of jail for a while. Which you're like, okay, Rick James, calm down. He calls home to check on his mom. This is another reoccurring thing, according to when the story is being told by Rick James, is that that dude loves his mama, and he calls her a lot. So he calls his mom, and she's like, dude, you're going to get caught again, but you have a cousin in Congress right now, and he can probably help you avoid the worst of it. So he turns himself back in and does like another six months. Huh. He literally goes escapes from military prison, and then goes and turns himself back in. And he claims this is how it goes down in his memoir. Who knows if this really happened. Yeah, did he break back in? Is that what he did? He broke back in? No, he says he gets on the plane to go back to Buffalo to turn himself into the FBI, and he sits down in a seat on the plane, and there's an abandoned magazine next to him. Something that's happened to me before on a plane, right? Leftover mag. He picks it up, and he starts thumbing through it. And I'm going to read directly from him. Mindlessly, I leaf through the pages. 
Vietnam was still tearing the country apart. Countercultural leaders were calling for BNs. The back the Black Panthers were making noise in Oakland. All this was interesting. But one article stopped me cold. It mentioned two musical groups. Buffalo Springfield featuring Neil Young and Bruce Palmer and Steppenwolf featuring Goldie McJohn. Both groups had major record deals and were the talk of LA. And those were my boys. When I was running in and out of prison, my boys had carried on with music and gotten themselves somewhere. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, it's a crazy sliding doors moment, right? I mean, what would the careers of Neil Young and Rick James have looked like if Rick James had not gone AWOL? What would Joni Mitchell's career look like? Would a Steppenwolf have existed? No, there'd been no Steppenwolf. They'd have been canceled <laughs> out of this equation. So it's like, what would happen to the the Rick James, Neil Young? I mean, like, right? Would they have? Would they have gotten incredibly famous? What if, What if in 1975, when John Paul Jones was really unhappy in Led Zeppelin, he joined their band as the bass player? <laughs> Now we're layering. We're putting a lot of layers on this now. But I want. I point wanted taken. to say. I wanted to say. Sometimes it's interesting to have options. <laughs> I also want to point out that we're talking about Buffalo Springfield again. Why does this keep happening? Uh, okay, the Buffalo Springfield formation story. Right. Uh, uh, we just need to talk about this. It's really interesting too because the story goes that when Rick James goes to military prison, Neil Young and Bruce Palmer don't know what to do. They're clueless. But. There had been this journeyman musician who'd been traveling through Canada some, and they'd hung out with some, and that Neil had played with some named Stephen Stills. And so they decide to go find him in L.A. They literally pack up a hearse that one of them owns. I think it's Neil. (laughs) And they drive this hearse into L.A. And they claim, to this day, Stephen Stills sees the Canadian plates on this hearse in L.A. traffic as they are driving into town turns around and follows them and they pull over in a parking lot and officially meet. And that, and that's the band in that parking lot. You've got Neil Young, Steven Stills and Bruce Palmer, and they'll become Buffalo Springfield. That, I mean, that that's crazy. That's crazy. Uh, also to make sure we can be adequately self-referential, Rick James talks about studying music during his second stint in military prison and being inspired and struck by a particularly wild album that someone showed him and that album features two guys standing on the front of Cadillacs. That album is two for the price of one. The Larry Williams and Johnny guitar Watson album that we talked about on episode 85. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Remember I was trying to explain back then that Larry Williams was a huge influence on music and here's just more proof of that. Yeah. It's crazy too that it's um, Rick James. I know. And, and here's the other thing. And you mentioned this, that, this is not the only thing that Rick James is going to go to prison for. It's not his last incarceration. He will famously right. do five years in Folsom. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but do you know this story about why he goes to Folsom? Yeah, it was, um, he had, he had somebody locked up in his house. Yeah. And he was, and he was like, uh, he was like lighting the crack pipe or, you know, on fire. Burning them burning, with it. Yeah. Burn, burning. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. So, so whatever you charge someone with, uh, 
you know, whatever you charge someone with not letting them out of the house. Well, and yeah, so kidnapping, them. kidnapping, and there's a there's a torture charge. The torture charge gets dropped. So he just does five years, like for kidnapping. He there's like a lot of charges that get brought to him because of that sexual assault, a whole bunch of stuff, and like it all gets dropped. And just gets kidnapping. Yeah, I think for that he just gets kidnapping, and then there's like other sex assault charges that come up for the next decade or something after this, and yes. most of them eventually will get dropped. So a very problematic figure to say the least but an absolutely fascinating study of what could have been. And, and not yeah. just because of the scene he first came out of and how alignment there would have put him in a totally different trajectory, but also because in a lot of ways, he was his own worst enemy. Oh, boy, for sure, yeah. And, and what could have been. Right, he like, lots would, of what could would have he been have moments. been the biggest act of all time? Like, he could have been the biggest act of all time. One of them. I mean, the, the things are lining up here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And... They did have a band together. Yeah, they did. So, Elvin, there you go, man. Uh, there, there was definitely a band, and I hope that that um, whets your appetite to to dig into the life of Rick James. When, when I started doing this, I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'll just answer the question. Yes, they were briefly in the Minor Birds together, and then we'll just talk about Rick James's life. Nah, man, we're gonna need like a we're gonna need a side series for the Rick James story because there's just way too much. This was a nice little taste. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I do recommend the books if you want to really dig in. Thanks for telling us about that, buddy. That's cool. We are the story guys at gmail.com. If you have a story you want us to investigate, anything you want to tell us, you can also leave a review anywhere you listen. That really is helpful to us if you will do that, especially if it's a good one. And uh, you can tweet at Murdoch. Hey, it's Murdoch. Uh, and what should people keep doing until next time? And next time, make sure keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.